0: I'll have a hamburger, for which I will gladly pay you Tuesday.
1: But who says a hamburger has to come from a cow? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton.
2: There's nothing. In the world that can compare with a hamburger, juicy and rare. A hamburger lives for the pleasure it gives. It's a thrill on the bill of fare.
1: The industry that satisfies our craving for steak, burgers, pork chops, and tuna melts also produces vast amounts of climate eating gases. Giving up meat is one of the simplest ways to reduce your carbon footprint, but it's not likely that most of the world will turn vegan anytime soon.
2: You have to solve the problem without requiring people to change their diets, and the only way to do it is to develop a better technology that's much more sustainable, but it has to also produce more delicious, more nutritious, more affordable food, because that's how you win in the market.
1: That's Patrick Brown, founder of Impossible Foods and the creator of the Impossible Burger. He's hoping that his plant-based patty, which is sold at both high-end restaurants and the White Castle chain, will take a huge bite out of the factory-raised beef industry. And as Carolyn Jung of the Food Gal blog reports, the Impossible Burger might have a shot. People were hearing that, oh my God, it bleeds and it
3: has the texture of a burger and people can't really tell the difference. And I think that got a lot of people interested, not just vegetarians, but people who are
1: diehard carnivores. Plant-based burgers aren't the only way to get your surf and turf fix. Mike Seldon is the co-founder of Finless Foods, a startup that's developing a way to make tuna that comes from a lab, not the ocean.
0: These cells already exist inside of the system, and in the system they already do this function, which is to become meat. We're just taking this process from inside of the fish and replicating it outside of the fish.
1: On today's program, Greg Dalton talks with Patrick Brown, Carolyn Jung, and Mike Seldon about innovations in food production that could help save our planet.
4: Mike Seldon, let's begin with you. How are you going to make tuna without a fish?
0: Cutting right to it, yeah. (laughs) Um, So saying entirely without a fish is a little bit, uh, not 100% what we're doing, right? We are taking a small sample of meat from a real fish, but the idea is one sample from one fish once pulling it out of that fish, just isolating the cells that grow the fastest and then growing them up in large quantities in the same way they grow inside of the fish. So these cells already exist inside of the system that we are taking them from, and in the system they already do this function, which is to become meat. We're just taking this process from inside of the fish and replicating it outside of the fish. So it is in every way uh, replicating the same sensory experience of meat because it is really fish meat.
4: And what stage is your company, and when will there be products available? I think you're going to start with little pieces of sashimi, right? Uh, when are you going to be out in the marketplace?
0: Yeah, so we're a very young company. We just started last year. Um, we've already made some some good progress, but we're still in an R&D stage. We're doing some initial sampling. Last year in September, we had the um, the first ever tasting of fish created without needing to kill any fish, and that was like really exciting. So since then, we've moved over to Emeryville, um, just over the water, and we now have a lab and a staff, and we're moving forward in order to basically drop our costs, because really what we're doing is taking what was previously medical technology, like 3D organ printing, and applying it to food. So the technology exists, it's just a matter of dropping the cost to the point where people can afford it. And so um, we intend to be on market. um, We intend to have a product ready for market by the end of 2019, um, but we'll probably see it actually available in mid-2020.
4: Pat Brown, your company is more mature. It's what gathered $300 million or so in funding from, from some very big names. Uh, t- but tell us about your journey from Stanford medical professor to entrepreneur wearing a hip hoodie and a, <laughs> uh, change your white coat for a green hoodie. So,
2: Yeah, so uh, for most of my adult life, I was uh, worked as a basic research scientist, microbiologist, um, I was at Stanford in the medical school for about 25 years uh, as a professor and um, and loved that job and had zero interest in uh, business and uh, very little interest in food. I mean, I, 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 I like to eat food, but I don't think of it when I'm think about it when I'm not eating it. And I certainly don't photograph it. <laughs> um, so so it was this was a very unlikely place for me to wind up. But I had a sabbatical. Uh, a little over eight years ago uh, that gave me time to sort of step back from what I was doing, which was, you know, basic molecular cell biology and genomics and cancer research and stuff like that. And uh, and try to think of what's the most important thing I can do. What's given the things I'm capable capable of doing, which is a limited set of things, uh, how can I have the highest positive impact on the plant? And I very quickly realized that uh, it was a no brainer that that the use of animals as a technology for producing food is by such a humongous margin, nothing comes close. The most destructive technology on Earth. And it's not just climate change, which a lot of people know about. It's not just that it's incredibly water inefficient. Probably the most uh, destructive aspect of it is that uh, um, it, right now it occupies about 50% of its land area, either grazing or feed crops um, cows outweigh every wild animal, every wild vertebrate left on earth by a factor of 10. And, and the total number of living, uh, wild animals on earth, according to the World Wildlife Fund has dropped by half in the past 40 years. There's half as many wild animals on earth today. And that's pretty much across the board, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians. And it's almost entirely due to our use of animals as food. And on land, it's, Uh, habitat destruction and degradation by the massive uh, land footprint and also uh, um, resource intensiveness of of meat production in the oceans and rivers and lakes, it's overfishing. So animals as a food technology, nothing comes close in terms of destructiveness. And what I realized was you're not going to solve the problem by telling people to change their diets. Just give up on that. It's just too hard, even for people who know the problem and care about it, to make that jump. And that basically meant that you have to solve the problem without requiring people to change their diets. And the only way to do it is to beat the incumbent industry in the market, develop a better technology that's much more sustainable, but it has to also produce more delicious, more nutritious, more affordable food, because that's how you win in the market. And I was sure that that was doable, though I didn't know how to do it at the time. But I felt like it Nobody else was really trying, and so I would just go all in on it and um, founded this company and started putting together the just by far the best r and d team ever to work on food and studying meat as if it were a disease, I mean, just the way that we would study cancer in my old lab, trying to understand the fundamental mechanisms that underlie the flavors and textures and juiciness in biochemical terms, so that once we understand the mechanisms we can find plant derived proteins that are more sustainable and that have the same salient properties and make a product that outperforms meat in the ways that consumers care about.
4: So you want to compete on performance, not on virtue. You're not after those, no. uh, the Berkeley vegans who are, right, okay. Um, and so, uh, Carolyn Jung, you write about food, flavors, the industry. You know, get, let's get your take on these, this array of these companies and, and where they are. There's other companies out there that are trying to have, you know, different types of replaced shrimp, or there's other things. So let's get your take on the landscapes that you cover this from a food lover perspective.
3: I think um, it's a... Very exciting time because um, we have all these options now and we're harnessing the brain power and the technology of Silicon Valley, which is coming up with you know all kinds of incredible things we never would have imagined 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even maybe five years ago. Um, so the things that um, Pat and Mike are both creating are really exciting and I think they're creating a buzz Um, especially, you know, in the Bay Area. Everybody is so interested in the latest, the greatest, the newest, hottest thing. They want to be the first to try it. And um, I know when the Impossible Burger first just came on the scene, there was just so much interest in it, um, especially because um, people were hearing that, oh, my God, it it bleeds and it has the texture of a burger and people can't really tell the difference. And I think that got a lot of people interested, not just um, vegetarians, but people who are diehard carnivores i mean i as a as a a writer who writes about food and just someone who loves to eat um i'm very intrigued by it and also i kind of am interested in sort of what the future holds beyond that um you know what else is going to come up with this is the price point on these things going to be such that everybody can afford it, because I think that's always a knock against things like this and even organics. There's only a, you know, a certain population that can actually afford this. And, you know, they're frankly the ones who probably don't really need it. Um, So how does that all play out?
4: If you're just joining us, we're talking about food innovation with Pat Brown, founder and CEO of Impossible Foods. Carolyn Jung, author of the Food Gal blog and Mike Selden, co-founder of Finless Foods. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's get uh, talk about price. Uh, Pat, I think it's fair to say you have sort of the Tesla model. You sort of starting high at some fancy restaurants. And as you scale, the price will come down. Uh, Where are you on that path to getting to kind of an affordable uh, taking something that's luxury, but making it more affordable?
2: Well, I'd say we're we're um, very far along on the path farther than I thought we'd be at this point Um, without getting into the precise economics. What I can say is that, um, you know, we have uh, our burger is sold as a two ounce cheeseburger uh, at White Castle and it's doing really well. The more important point is that the fundamental economics of the way that we produce it, because Basically, resource expensiveness translates into fundamentally more expense. We use less land, less water, uh, less fertilizer, less of all the inputs that go into the animal based system. And so asymptotically, there's no question we win. And we think probably, of course, you don't know how long it'll take until you've done it, but I'd say within the next few years, with a very high degree of confidence that we will have a product that costs less to produce than any ground beef or any beef from a cow. And then, you know, we can make it affordable to people who can't afford it. And that is a big part of our mission is that, you know, it's not just the original impetus for me is this is the absolute most urgent and and dangerous environmental problem in the world right now, but it's also a big cause of food insecurity, particularly protein and iron malnutrition, you know, the expense of producing it. And so that's something we want to address as well.
4: Mike Selden, how about cost? Is this going to be an elite sort of coastal fancy sushi place uh, kind of thing for for finless foods and also the, the life cycle analysis? Have you done an analysis to say that your you know, tuna from a lab, the em- environmental impact overall versus uh, one that comes from the sea?
0: In terms of it being a uh, luxury coastal thing, I really hope not. That would really be a bummer and sort of not what we're trying to do. Um, That said, even if all we manage to do is to create a luxury product from this, we actually are making a large difference. And I can go into how we'll drop the cost in a second, but I just want to hit that point at first because um, people don't realize what an impact the, like, basically luxury market has on the world. I mean, the top... 10% Um, 10% of people economically are the ones creating over 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions in terms of their lifestyle. And this is extremely in effect in a place like San Francisco where we are now. So what we're producing is bluefin tuna. Um, even if the only people who ever end up eating this are the San Franciscans who eat bluefin tuna right now. We get a lot of our bluefin tuna from countries like the Philippines, which no longer can afford to fish their own waters because we're buying it out from underneath them. So even if all we do are switch people in luxury markets over to something like this, it actually does make a difference. That said, we are trying to drop our cost all the way down to a commodity good. We're trying to actually bring this down so that everyone can afford it. Bluefin tuna still makes sense for us because since we're working with cells, it. Doesn't matter if we're working with a like really really cheap fish like a tilapia or a bluefin tuna. It's all the same price to us. So we figured we might as well work with something that is a luxury good anyways and attach our brand to it. Um, it's really funny that you said you know uh, patent Impossible Foods are using uh, the Tesla model because we say we are using the Impossible Foods model, um, <laughs> and we tell it to people all the time. So it's really funny to hear it trickle down the stage this way. Um, but yeah, I mean we really need to make sure that this is. Seen as something that is desirable, and Tesla and Impossible Foods have done a really good job of that. Of taking something that before was seen as you know not great, like an electric car or a veggie burger, and making it something so much more because you're selling it as a, uh, a luxury good and as something that is. Good on its own, not even for its environmental benefits, because if people were buying things based on their environmental benefits, like we're talking about, they just go vegan. But that's like not happening. And so we need to like show people that these things can be delicious, can be good for you, can be interesting to eat, create that experience. And then as Impossible Foods has done, drop the price to the point where you can actually create a commodity good that can be sold at White Castle.
4: Uh, there are critics of these new kinds of pr- proteins out there. We don't have any of them on the program. We did interview uh, Mike Hansen, who's a senior scientist with Consumer Union, and he has concerns about this new generation of proteins.
5: Where the new issues get raised is the use of these products with ingredients that are coming from uh, genetic engineering, uh, You know, such as the proteins in Perfect Day milk products, And then you would have the culture technologies where the actual material is coming from a living animal. Even though on the surface, it seems like it might be safer. There are always problems with contamination. We do have the impossible foods and there are serious questions about the soy leg hemoglobin that was put into that food because this is a case where the substance itself has never been in the human food supply before, even though they knew that the FDA had told them that this product does not meet the general recognition of safety criteria, and yet they're going forward with it. So there's the unknown health consequences of those engineered proteins. And in terms of the environmental impact, you should look at the full cycle. So where are the inputs, for example, to feed the yeast? That's gonna ultimately be a source like sugarcane or corn. Right? How are those grown? What are the impacts of that? So we're not anti-technology. We just want to see the evidence that these things are safe for the environment and people and that they're clearly labeled so that consumers can have a choice.
4: That's Michael Hansen, senior scientist with Consumers Union. Uh, Pat Brown, let's have your response. There's a lot in there. He hits genetic engineering
2: and new to the human food supply. Let's take those two. Sure. So... Um, we could have a long conversation about genetic engineering, but I think the the, the way to think about this is uh, the reason that we chose this way to make this protein is that we discovered that the uh, reason that meat tastes like meat, any kind of meat, beef, chicken, pork, you name it, the reason that you can recognize a food as being meat and nothing else, even if you've never eaten that particular species before, is a molecule called heme. It's a, a molecule that's found in every living cell on Earth, plants, animals and so forth. But because it's basically a, 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 a component of the of most systems in which your body interacts with oxygen and and the system that uses oxygen to burn and burn to produce uh, energy that your body can use. Um, animals have way more than plants do. Plants have hundreds of different heme proteins. I mean, spinach has more than a hundred different, completely different heme proteins that it. Every, you know, plant and animal has many, many heme proteins. In your average uh, daily diet, you're probably eating a thousand molecularly distinct heme proteins. Okay, none of them are toxic. They're in a they're they're in a class of proteins that is incredibly abundant in the diet and there's never been one that's remotely toxic. So the prior probability that one that we would pick uh, uh, would have any problem is exceedingly low. Nevertheless, you know, we've done extensive safety testing. It's in the it's it's on the public record. uh, And um, we have, I would say, more evidence for the safety of this protein as used in the diet than Probably almost any protein that's ever been introduced into the food system because we've looked at it so closely. But and how about the FDA saying, oh, it's not
4: it didn't meet the what the generally recognized as safe criteria?
2: Well, there's there's that's a that's a long conversation. But to just get it cut to it, the, we are completely compliant with the FDA's food regulations. We started talking to the FDA probably about five years ago, well before we were maybe at least two years before we were ever going to put a product in the market because we knew that there would be concerns we didn't we, we knew that this was an intrinsically safe protein for reasons that that any any biochemist would pretty much tell you but uh but that there would be safety concerns and FDA as the guardian of the uh US food supply would want some assurance that it's safe but the system is such that uh if we get an expert panel to um review all our data and and uh, conclude that it's safe that according to the fda we don't have to do anything else we don't even have to show them the results Uh, um, we did show them the results of that study they asked for a couple of additional um, pieces of information which we've since provided them we've had a wonderful interaction with them through this whole process extremely constructive And they have if they had any concerns, real concerns about the safety of this food on the market, they would exercise the power that they have to ask us to remove it from the market. And they haven't because they just wanted more evidence in in their formal process to assure the public that, you know, every box was checked. I don't want to speak for them, but I think that's the gist of it. So we've done that. So it's intrinsically safe. And consider the alternative. We we have taken the demand for basically the flavor that's produced by heme has covered the earth, 50% of the surface of earth, with animals that are being raised for food. Unbelievably destructive. We have 10 times more cow biomass than all the wild animals left on earth to satisfy that. Instead, we can take, um, and we've done the life cycle analysis, so this business about we don't really know what the you know, environmental impact of our processes is nonsense. We know it probably better than again almost any food because we've been so so and we you know we publish our sustainability report so it's out there um it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the water land uh, energy use greenhouse gas footprint carolyn jung uh
4: the the pew group did a study of of the fda and they found the fda was unaware of about up to ten thousand Uh, ingredients in our food system Um, what do you think about in terms of do we know enough do people know enough about what's really in these new food these innovative types of food for the long-term consequences do we know enough
3: I don't think people know the average person doesn't even know what they're eating on a daily basis. I mean, they
4: don't know. Is you look at an,
3: people who yeah. go to fast food. They don't know necessarily the calorie count is so high or Jamba juice, you know, where it's over a thousand calories in one smoothie. Although
4: there's labeling now in yeah. places. But still,
3: labels. I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, they kind of just, you know, goes right over their head. It's not something um, they want to be bothered by. They just want to enjoy their food. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate, Pat, Please just do. because I am a food journalist. Yes. Um, it's no knock against impossible foods, Bye. but I think, um, a lot of times because people read about, um, and they don't really read. I mean, nobody does. He says we skim things and we don't always get the gist and the depth of the information. Um, so I know a lot of people, um, when the impossible burger came out, they were like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. Um, And then other studies came out saying, well, it's actually quite high in sodium, higher than a regular beef burger. um, And it uses coconut oil, which has uh, more saturated fat than butter, lard, and tallow. Mm -hmm. And despite what Gwyneth Poucho wants us to believe, is not the latest best thing, you know, that we should just throw everything out the window and just eat coconut oil. So um, I mean, in your mind, is the Impossible Burger, the, the, the product you've created, is this something that people should eat on a daily basis, weekly basis? Or is this something like many other things? It's um, a treat or an occasional uh,
2: meal. Okay, well, there's lots of stuff in there, but, but quickly. So I, I think that the, the best piece of just dietary advice that you can possibly have is eat a diverse diet. OK, don't eat too much of anything. Um, so if you eat if, if if anyone were eating, you know, um, an impossible burger at every meal or if they were eating whatever kale at every meal, it would be a burger. very bad, bad uh, uh, choice to make. So you want to eat a diverse diet. Um, and then with respect to the nutritional profile of our burger. Well, first of all, the the uh, sodium content, which we are. So we're we're continually optimizing the nutrition. But I'll just say that the sodium content of a burger as served in a restaurant as opposed to the ground beef that you um, make at home, uh, you know, even if you don't, even if you make it home, almost every chef, the average sodium content, the average fraction of weight, fraction of a burger that is table salt is about one point three percent. That's that's typical in a restaurant. So the the sodium content of our raw material by the time it's a burger um, is not higher than, you know, a typical burger. The other thing is that and I think this is a really important point, Okay, Um, We wouldn't have launched it if we didn't think this was a product that as uh, consumed in a normal diet was as healthy or more than the same product from a cow. And there are, you know, uh, health effects from eating excessive amounts of, of animal meat. But we're continually getting better. So we are working very hard. And we've actually made a tremendous amount of progress that I can't really talk about. But we we've made a tremendous amount of progress, let's say, in lowering the fat content, the saturated fat content, uh, the sodium content. And that's part of the magic of the way that we're doing it. That's that's a big part of the reason why I know we're going to accomplish our goal. I know we're going to beat the incumbent industry because we can get better every day. And the cow is not getting has not gotten better in <laughs> years and it's not going to get better. Um, so we can optimize these things and optimize for nutrition as well as flavor, as well as cost and so forth. And that's what we're doing.
4: Mike Selden, uh, let's hear about farmed fish. Uh, you know, is that you're doing, you know, fish in a laboratory, uh, farmed fish some people sustainable. Is that an option? Because you're really concerned about the depletion of fish stocks in the ocean. Let's talk about farmed as a viable, healthy for the planet, healthy for us.
0: Yeah, so actually, I'm going to tie into what Pat just said. Um, In terms of iteration, so we're working on bluefin tuna, and one of the reasons that that's so expensive is that it, right now, can't be farmed efficiently. There is one outfit on Earth that can do bluefin tuna aquaculture, and that's Tuna Princess in Japan. Um, And people ask, you know, like, why... um, why don't we just do that? Like, what's wrong with their method? And aside from, like, environmental concerns, uh, any animal rights concerns, but we can iterate so much faster than they can. Um, bluefin tuna aquaculture was stymied for 10 years uh, from one specific issue. The bluefin tuna were um, eating when they were young, and then they stopped eating at a certain point and people were saying, like, why? Why did they just stop eating all the food? They tried all these different things to feed them. Um, it eventually turned out that because the, the bluefin had not received enough DHA in their diet when they were young, that they, their eyes hadn't developed and they had gone blind. And so basically we starved these fish and uh, we blinded these fish and then starved them to death for 10 years. The life cycle of the bluefin tuna is fairly long. It's years. We can iterate in our lab in days. Cells live and die in a matter of just days. And so Maybe you can do aquaculture with bluefin tuna, but we can iterate so much faster than they can. And also, just as Pat said, that fish is not going to change very much. It takes a very long time to evolve a full organism into something different, but it takes us very little time to change what we're doing on a cellular level or on a plant-based food chemistry level, Um, and it just makes the process so much easier. Aquaculture has a lot of problems associated with it. It creates dead zones in the ocean because it's actually not generally done on land. Almost all the aquaculture that we use actually for food is done in the water. This aquaculture uses insecticides, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides and this seeps out into the environment, creating these dead zones. It's kind of an ecological disaster in a lot of ways. It has solved the overfishing problem, and it has done a lot to solve problems related to mercury and plastic and the fish that people are eating, but it's created an entirely different set of environmental problems that aren't being solved for um, yet. And we think that we can solve those problems much faster and much more efficiently.
4: We're talking about food innovation with Carolyn Jung, author of the Food Gal blog, Mike Selden from Thinless Foods, and Pat Brown from Impossible Foods. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to ask uh, quick questions for our guests here, starting with uh, association. I'll just mention a noun, and the guests respond with the first thing that comes to their mind well, with re- complete or reckless regard for what any kind of filter that is. So, uh, Carolyn Jung, what comes to mind when I mention mandatory GMO labeling? A good thing. Pat Brown, grass-fed beef.
2: Um, <laughs> clean call. Uh, uh. <laughs>
4: Uh, Mike Selden, aquaculture. Environmentalism. True or false, uh, Carolyn Jung, breakfast cereal with GMO grains is no more engineered than a conventional Oreo. True. (laughs) Uh, Carolyn Jung, true or false, your husband's nickname is Meat Boy.
3: That's very true. (laughs)
4: Not meathead, meat boy. Okay. He uh,
3: says he can eat vegetarian, but then I find him at midnight sneaking salami out of the refrigerator. So, <laughs> uh,
4: Mike Seldon, true or false, fish is your generation's cigarettes.
0: True, and I say that all the time. Did you take that from one of my talks? Yeah, I,
4: I took it when we talked on the phone. That's, um, there we go. Just seeing uh, if, you're, if you still remember. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. <laughs> last one, true or false, Pat Brown, Food writer Michael Pollan's new mantra is don't drop any acid your grandmother wouldn't recognize.
2: Oh, love
4: that guy. (laughs) All right, let's give them a round for getting through that. (laughs) Pat Brown, there is a significant group of ranchers and academics who say that cows are not the problem. Cows can be part of a Holistic climate solution. They aerate the ground. They can help sequester carbon and water in the soil. That uh, not industrial feedlot operations, but cows can be part of a solution. Do you buy that argument that grass-fed beef has a place in a in an ecosystem uh, of, a,
2: of a sustainable world? Mm, absolutely not. It's just simple math, basically. First of all, I'll start with the fact that most of the animal biomass on Earth is cows, okay? And that situation has come at the expense of the biodiversity that existed before. When you turn a landscape, when you set cows loose grazing on a landscape, basically what you pretty much guarantee is that landscape will turn into an ecosystem that is optimized to be able to survive cows. And, you know, that's not the same as an ecosystem that was optimized to sustain buffalo or or elk or something like that. Anyway, the um, the land intensiveness of that um, grass fed beef system, it absolutely. If you try to scale grass fed beef to meet the world's demand for beef, you'd pretty much, you know, 100% of the Earth's land area would be used for that. And then this business about how um, cattle are actually having a positive effect of sequestering carbon in the soil. It's kind of like, yes, you can always find some academic who will who will support your belief, just like I'm sure you can find some scientists. You probably had some scientists up here who are saying that, you know, uh, uh, anthropogenic climate change is not a thing. Okay, Um, but the overwhelming scientific consensus is in the opposite direction. And the thing is that um, the studies that sometimes get cited are basically saying take land that has adapted to having cows grazing it and where there's no native animals, you know, uh, uh, browsing or grazing or living on that land. uh, When you set cows loose on that land, do they have a net effect on, uh, um, you know, soil storage in the carbon by smooshing plants into the ground? Yeah. But you don't need cows for that. I mean, you know, the plant was doing perfectly well. Uh, um, And Marin County was doing perfectly well before there were cows there because there are other animals who are serving that same function that were the species who over millions of years evolved to live there and are what you basically need to have a robust, stable um, ecosystem and wildlife habitat. So no, I think it's it's utter nonsense, but it's propaganda that is uh, repeatedly used because people would like to believe that there is some version of beef that's environmentally benign, and they just hang on to that, and it's completely unsupported by the facts. Mike Seldon, let's talk about
4: organics. A lot of people think organics are the solution. Uh, you have an interesting view on organics. Share that with us, in terms of its overall its impact, the pesticide use, et etc. Uh,
0: I don't know if my view on organic is uh, interesting in terms of scientists. I think it is a very uh, it's a very common view among many scientists, especially people who have worked in agriculture, um, and so. You know, I came out of UMass Amherst, which is traditionally an agriculture university, and so um, working with working with plants specifically, working with fungi, um, organic agriculture is—it's basically agriculture with your hands tied behind your back. It is a system that is inefficient for inefficiency's sake, and it's greenwashing. It's a way to sort of make um, rich city dwellers feel like they're making the better choice. Um, there are ways in which organic can be better. Uh, often, animal welfare laws are improved under organic labeling systems, but. Um, you know, you've seen uh, pesticide levels massively rise since we've begun the use of um, organic agriculture in Europe specifically, and they've dipped since we've begun using more conventional and GMO agriculture in America. And this is because when you can genetically modify a plant to be resistant to one specific pesticide, you only need one in order to cover everything and the plant will survive. Whereas if you're using organic pesticides, which, by the way, are just as harmful in a million different ways, um, obviously every pesticide is different, every system is different, there are cases in which this is not true, but you need many of them. You need something to knock out the insects, you need something to knock out the fungus, you need something to knock out like all the different types of pests that you'll deal with instead of just having one all-purpose pesticide, which creates far less runoff and ends up with a far better environmental footprint. And so, you know... There have been some techniques that were developed in organic agriculture that are really, really useful. But when those techniques are developed, they then just get used in conventional agriculture because you can do anything in conventional agriculture. It is agriculture with both of your hands in front of you and you can fully see what's going on, um, whereas organic is not.
4: And you said that GMOs can actually lead to reduced uh, pesticide use because there's some who would say that GMOs actually uh, enable and foster more pesticides, more Roundup use.
0: There You know, are some varieties of GMOs that do end up using more pesticides, but the vast majority decrease pesticide use by a wide amount. And the reality is that it's the farmers making these choices. I always hear these arguments coming from people who've never been near a farm. It's always people in cities like we are in San Francisco. the, the farmers themselves, they're going to choose whatever crop is cheapest to grow and brings them the most profit because that's the system that we live under. And so they're going to choose something that makes them use less pesticides because more pesticides costs more for them.
4: Uh, there's a a trial going on in San Francisco now. Uh, it's the first glyphosate roundup trial. Uh, you know that's uh, commonly used on uh, that's applied to a lot of GMO crops, uh, soybeans. Uh, Pat Brown is you know is there glyphosate used on on the soy that goes into into Impossible Foods? Do you know?
2: Uh, it, no, there's not on the soy that goes into. It. But um, but just as a piece of information, the most uh, widely used crops, that are genetically modified uh, and are uh, and use brown up as a pesticide are exclusively consumed by livestock. Um, You don't see humans eating the vast amounts of soybeans that are grown in Iowa and and uh, all that, you know, feed corn. Um,
4: so are you saying that, it, that if a cow eats a, a, a soybean that had glyphosate on it, it's, it's not going to be harmful to the human who then eats, a, eats that cow?
2: I, 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 I'm not saying that it'll be harmful for the human who eats that cow. I'm saying that the reason, the reason that I think is a, a pretty legitimate reason to, to be concerned about any pesticide is that it's, the pesticide is not completely specific to, to uh, um, your weeds. It's a uh, re- relatively broad spectrum Uh, herbicide and um, uh, if you can do without it, you'd be much better off. And the great thing about it is that because it because animal agriculture is so inefficient, we could replace the 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 vast amounts of of feed crops that are being used to feed cows and pigs and chickens and so forth uh, and use something like 2% of the land. okay, and uh, a tiny fraction of the water and a tiny, tiny fraction of the herbicides and pesticides because you don't need these vast, vast, vast amounts that are, that are turned into human food with, you know, low single-digit percent efficiency. That means that that land can return to its natural state, does not need pesticides, and uh, the total pesticide burden on Earth would be vastly reduced.
4: Carolyn Jung, you believe in a perfect world that the, we all would be eating organics. Let's get your view on the organics.
3: Um... I'm like afraid now to answer. I should
0: have read more of the blog. I guess. I
3: I think so. If organic standards, um, if what is grown actually meets organic standards, because I think sometimes that's a problem. You know, we hear about um, organic standards in like China. um, They're kind of like yeah, and so you kind of wonder, well, what am I exactly getting here? So um, in a perfect world, yeah, I think it means a lot to people. Um, You know, I've been at farmers markets at times where people go around to the stands asking, like, well, is this organic? And if someone says, well, no, but we don't use pesticides and we grow locally, people will walk away. And, um, you know, I kind of, like, shrug about that because I think, um, you know, here's someone... Doing the right thing, they may not be certified organic, which is a really costly, long endeavor um, but they're they 're very much adhering to the spirit of organics, and you know why should they be penalized or why should they lose business so i think it's it 's um, yeah, in an ideal, wonderful glossy world that would be great but um, I don't think that's the world we're ever going to get to necessarily so I think we have to sort of open our minds and learn that um, you know organic is great but then there are also ways where people are doing things another way without harmful chemicals necessarily um, and that they should be supported for it
4: if you're just joining us we're talking about food innovation with pat brown founder of ceo of impossible foods carolyn jung author of the food gal blog and mike selden co-founder of finless foods i'm greg dalton let's go to our audience questions welcome to climate one
1: Thank you. My name is Marjorie, and my question is about nutritional value. So my question about the Impossible Burger, can you comment on the nutritional value uh, by weight? So um, are you ingesting mostly um, corn in terms of a nutritional product for the weight of the food that you're eating? Or what is the value to the, um, is the product designed to meet nutritional cravings as well as taste and texture cravings?
2: Yeah. Okay, super good question. So first of all, we're not going to, since people rely on uh, meat as a major source of protein and iron, one of the the criteria for us is that we have to deliver on that. And so um, we are extremely meticulous, not just about total protein, but the uh, amino acid balance, so much so that like two and a half years ago, we spent uh, something that would, be a surprising amount of money doing uh, a study with human subjects where we fed them our burger and a burger made from a cow and uh, measured, took multiple blood samples from this, this with 30 subjects over the course of a week. Um, looking at amino acid, the levels of every amino acid in their blood with the specific purpose of making sure that the bioavailability of essential amino acids was as good or better than, than the cow version, and we're not even satisfied with that. So we're working right now on a, a, a version that will have um, a better, a more optimal amino acid balance than a cow. And that's doable. And the cow's not working on this problem. <laughs> so we're extremely committed to, to making to optimizing nutrition. And we're going to be optimizing nutrition continually now until forever, basically, because we can next question. Welcome to Climate One. Just wanted to hear from uh, you, Pat and Mike, especially what you see as the greatest barriers for increasing consumer acceptance of your products in in the long term. Um, I don't see any really uh, uh, surprising barriers. I think really what it comes down to is we have to relentlessly focus on making our product more delicious. And that may seem counterintuitive, but, you know, the... Transportation industry didn't stop one mechanized transportation could run even with a horse, and we don't have to either making it more delicious, better nutritional profile, uh, more affordable. Those are hard tasks, and that's why we have the best R&D team in the, you know, history of food, but there are no barriers. They're just, you know, challenges. Kerlin Jung,
4: let's go to you first. There's cultural barriers. There's ideological barriers about I mean, beef is so ingrained in our in our culture. Do you see cultural barriers to like like I don't know real men don't eat like veggies? Texans.
3: Well, beef? Who only want their beef. They're no, the thing is, I,
2: I OK, who here loves meat? OK, almost everyone. And who here loves the fact that your meat comes from the corpse of an animal? Nobody. Okay, right. bingo. So it's about so taste. People love beef. Taste. People love beef. The cow is just the technology we've used up till now to produce beef. You can still have your beef. It'll be better, um, and it won't be produced using a cow. So no loss to anyone. Yeah, yeah the People, idea behind people you, like don't nice think carolers. about that.
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I get so many comments a lot of times that people go to the store, they get their plastic wrap steak, their plastic wrap chicken breasts, and they disassociate that this used to be part of an animal. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, when I was uh, a food writer at the Mercury News, we had this cover story on the food section about um, Oakland Raiders tailgating parties, and the centerpiece photo was a pig on a spit. And I got a call from a reader, a woman who said, I can't believe you put that photo in the paper, you know, my son was very upset, he's very little, and I said, does your son eat pork, does he eat meat? And she said, yeah, he does, but, you know, he didn't want to see this, and so I think we forget, especially these days, because of how convenient everything is, cut and wrapped and, you know, just delivered to us in this kind of antiseptic way, that It is part of an animal Um, and culturally. Yeah, I think there's like I was kind of half joking, you know, Texans like their beef and so do a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And I think there is that hurdle, um, not only getting them to try it, but also um, having something like the Impossible Foods uh, burger become something that's regular in their diet, I think a lot of people maybe will try it as a novelty, like, oh, this is something interesting. But um, I guess the question is, if, you, if they go back to whatever restaurant and they, they see this on the menu again and they've already tried it, will they order it again or will they order their steak like they usually do?
2: Well, we don't have data on everyone, but we have, we have data on, first of all, most of our consumers are meat eaters, about 75%. And there's a very high rate of of satisfaction, recommending it to other people uh, and coming back. But um, we're not satisfied with that. I mean, the thing is, until the very last meat eater decides, nope, actually, that cow chunk is so much worse, less delicious, less nutritious than, you know, the impossible burger that I'm not going to force myself to eat it again. Um, and by the way, even in Texas, I would say the meat eaters in Texas are just like the meaters. Everyone else, they love their beef. They don't uh, love the technology that we use to produce it. They use to produce it. If it's if it delivers on deliciousness, nutrition, uh, affordability, and it's not made using an animal, um, I don't think they're going to say, no, I actually want to eat something that's less delicious, less nutritious, more expensive, because I just love the fact that this, you know, <laughs> it came from a corpse of an animal. I don't think that's going to well, happen. Well, some hunters do, but uh, uh, Mike Selden, let's...
0: Yeah, so right now, consumers have a choice. They have something that is, you know, better for the planet, which is plants and potentially better for themselves in the way that is produced, and then they have what's delicious and what they want to eat. And I think that this technology is trying to not change what people eat. We're not trying to change their their like will or who they are or or what their choices are. We just want to make that choice not necessary anymore. We want to combine those two things. We want to make it so that what people want to eat is also the choice that's better for themselves, for the planet and for animals. And so you know, it's it's sort of just a change in the method of production, not in the end food itself. And also, I think something that's interesting is, you know, we live every day with this sort of, like, mental gymnastics, this, like, dichotomy of, like, I eat this thing, but I, I know that I don't like killing animals personally. And I think, I sort of wonder what that does to us psychologically, and I wonder what will happen once we've moved past that, and, like, what that could maybe potentially do to the human psyche, not to get too, sort of, San Francisco about all of this, <laughs> but uh, it... It's, it's an interesting thing like that we, we live with this every day. What will happen when we don't have to?
1: Greg Dalton has been talking about sustainable food production for a healthier planet. His guests were Carolyn Jung, author of the Food Gal blog and winner of the James Beard Award for feature writing, Mike Selden, CEO and co-founder of Finless Foods, a startup aiming to make tuna without a fish, and Patrick Brown founder and ceo of impossible foods which creates plant-based alternatives to meat to hear all our climate one conversations subscribe to our podcast at our website climateone.org where you'll also find photos video clips and more if you like the program please let us know by writing a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and join us next time for another conversation about america's energy economy and environment
4: Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.